and gentlemen, we are about ready to begin, so uh, there is some lovely music that you can see whether you can recognize what that might be or the composer, but uh, as we begin, let me start us off with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this night, for this chance to gather in your name. We thank you for this wonderful book we're studying, where we pray in the midst of all of the themes and stuff going on in this book that you would help your truth come and be settled in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Right, so does anybody know what could just keep listening to that? I would be very happy to just keep listening. Uh, it is Henry Purcell, if you know about Henry Purcell, uh, one of the great English choral composers and organists. Uh, and this particular piece is from Psalm 119, uh, along with other things, uh, but it is entitled, Thy Word is a Lantern to My Feet, and I commend it to you. It is a glorious thing to listen to while you look at the words. So, uh, that is enough of that, and we will switch over to our PowerPoint. Uh, St. John's College, Cambridge, which... Uh, is probably after King's College, Cambridge, the next best choir there. So, let's begin, as usual, by saying our verse together from Ephesians 5. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. 
For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So welcome, and welcome to those that are joining us on the live stream or the various other channels. Uh, Every week we have people that are new that have found out about the class, so we're delighted to have you if you haven't been here before. Uh, Just a quick word about how to approach this class. There are three ways you can do this. You can be on the beach, which means you come when you feel like it. You do what you feel like. It's all about you. and you may not want to do any work at all, that's totally fine. I'm delighted for you to be here on whatever terms you want. Or you can snorkel, which means that you pay attention to particular themes or parts that you like, and you don't pay much attention to the rest. Or you can scuba dive, which means you are a nerd like me, and you like to go all the way down the rabbit hole and listen to all the music and read the words and read the translations of the words of the music, and then read the long handouts. So I have another long handout for scuba divers tonight that is so great. So if you're a scuba diver, please get it. Um, I apologize for the fact that it's 16 pages long and in small type, but it is really good. And if you liked, this, this will be a good way for you to know whether to pick that one up or not. If you liked last week, when we spent that time unpacking the symbolism of the two different journeys, this is a further expansion of that theme. If, when you were listening to me talk about that, you thought, when is he ever going to move on? This would not be the handout for you. So, uh, also, if you are joining us on one of our uh, various technology channels and you're not on our email list, please Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and shoot me an email, and I will get you added for that. So this book, That Hideous Strength, I'm still encouraging people to read one chapter at a time. We've been going very slowly. I'm trying to make myself pick up momentum a little bit. Um, God willing, we will finish chapter three tonight. Uh, But I would encourage you to try to read a little bit ahead. And then I would also encourage you, after you've been to class, to go back and reread what we talked about. Um, There are lots of places you can go. You can go to YouTube, um, the church YouTube channel. You can go to Apple Podcast. You can go to the church uh, website uh, under the Sermons and Classes tab. Uh, Or if you just look in the class email, it's got all the links for it there. So tonight, uh, we're going to start with a quick review from the themes of Abolition of Man and One of the reasons for this is, remember, Lewis talked about this book, That Hideous Strength, is a fictional depiction of the same themes that are in the abolition of man. And we're going to see some of that tonight in particular. So the three parts of the abolition of man, men without chests, which is essentially Lewis's polemic in favor of the idea of objective value. That's subjectivism saying everything is a matter of opinion that's up to the individual. He says that is the recipe for the end of civilization as we know it. And then he talks about the way, this idea of the law of human nature that everyone is subject to and is the source of all value judgments. And then the abolition of man, this idea that uh, when we talk about man's control of nature, In reality, what that means is a means for some men, who Lewis calls conditioners, to control others using nature as their instrument. And we talked about the other books in this series that I commend to you, Out of the Silent Planet, the guy who's the Cambridge language professor who's kidnapped to be taken as a human sacrifice to Mars. Uh, That's a great story. Uh, Paralandra the retelling of the story of creation of Adam and Eve taking place on Venus where there is no fall. Fascinating. Lewis's description of the bubble trees, that alone is worth reading the book for. So great. And then, of course, that hideous strength, which is this strange combination of dystopian fantasy, Arthurian legend, philosophy, academia, 
and spiritual warfare all rolled up into one big enchilada. So, uh, well, remember that the title comes from that medieval poem and dialogue uh, and the line, the shadow of that hideous strength, six mile and more, it is of length, referring, of course, to the Tower of Babel, the idea that man thinks he can be God and he can do a better job than God's doing and no thank you, we don't need God anymore, we can manage quite well on our own which is the subtext behind this entire book. I'm not going to go through this whole list of characters, uh, but I do want to just look at the ones right at the end who are the newer characters. Uh, We're getting more sinister characters being added into the story. Uh, So we have Grace Ironwood, who's not sinister. Uh, She is uh, at the community of St. Anne on the Hill, and she is the one who is the interpreter of dreams and visions. Uh, Ivy Mags is the part-time housekeeper for the Stuttocks, uh, who are sort of the protagonist in the story. John Weather. What a great name. Just think about Weather. Weather is what happens when people give me houseplants. Um, they weather and die. And John Weather, that's basically what he seems to accomplish uh, through his work causing that kind of thing to happen to other people. He is the deputy director of the NICE. Um, We also talked about Bill Hingist, who was the uh, renowned professor of science at Bracton, who had been hired by the NICE, but as soon as he got there, he decided he needed to get out because it was clearly corrupt. Professor Felistrato is an eminent Italian physiologist who works for the NICE. And then Ferry Hardcastle, Um, one of the more memorable and creepy characters uh, in this story, uh, who is an aggressive woman uh, of disordered loves who is the head of the secret police at the NICE. Now, of course, that begs the question, why does the NICE need secret police? But we'll get to that later. So um, you'll remember the book starts off in Chapter 1, talking about the sale of college property, And Bracton College, this beautiful ancient college that has been around for nearly a thousand years, uh, beautiful old buildings, and this beautiful wood, um, an ancient, ancient forest that goes back to before the Middle Ages, and they are selling it off to the nice. And in that section of the wood is what is reputed to be Merlin's Well. We haven't really gotten into a lot of the King Arthur stuff yet, but that is coming. Uh, So that's what that starts off with, and also with some of Jane and Mark's marriage problems. Jane wanting to be completely independent and feeling that marriage is uh, holding her back from all that she could be. Mark being absolutely desperate to get promoted in academia, and to feel like he is somebody in his job. So then in chapter two, Mark gets invited to dinner with some of the college administration. He is over the moon. He has been noticed by the people who count. And so he is thrilled uh, at his progress with that, and he is then invited to check out the nice, the ultimate inner circle, which he is thrilled about. Um, Mark is invited to go to their headquarters, and that's the story we unpack as he goes in the sports car, uh, running over animals, scaring people in the streets, zooming to get to the nice headquarters that is in a blood transfusion office. Just think about that. And then Jane, who is taking the slow milk train through the beauty of the countryside to St. Anne's on the Hill. So uh, we talked last week about the um, events that happen once Mark gets to the nice, and he has this conversation that if you haven't read this part, please go read this. It's just brilliant, because Lewis has whether having this conversation with Lord Feverstone and Mark Studdock about, Mark thinks the conversation is about whether he is getting a job at the nice or not, which seems like a reasonable thing to talk about at what's supposed to be a job interview. 
and they evade it in every possible, it's just a masterpiece of obfuscation and word after word after word without saying anything at all. So that happens. Mark is very confused. Then he's very happy because he meets Bill Hingist, who he knows from Bracton. And then Hingist is telling him this place is terrible, don't have anything to do with it. But Mark is so caught with this idea of being part of the inner ring that he can't really hear that. And then Philostrato, who's famous, notices Mark, and Mark's whole pride just is inflamed again, and so he gets very excited about that. But then he is uh, told by Philostrato that the only people that matter at the Nice are Wither and Fairy Hardcastle, who's the head of the internal police. So uh, then the action shifts over to St. Anne's on the Hill, where Jane goes as she passes a church and crosses. It's pretty obvious what Lewis is trying to say here. And then she goes to this old manor house where there's this beautiful long wall with a door in it and a little bell. Well, Lewis is obsessed with doors and walls and bells. Um, You can find them in lots of his stories. Uh, But she is simultaneously drawn and repelled by this place. And when she's admitted through the door, there's this fabulous garden that is full of fruit-bearing trees and vegetables and flowers. And she walks through this long, long, long garden before she gets to the house and eventually meets Miss Ironwood, the person who's supposed to be able to interpret her dreams. But Jane and Miss Ironwood are coming from radically different perspectives. And so they have a conversation that's kind of one of these, like this, they just don't communicate because Jane sees these dreams and visions as some sort of disorder from which she needs to be cured. And she wants to eliminate them. She doesn't want to understand them. She doesn't want to have anything to do with them because she feels like they're interfering with her life. Whereas Miss Ironwood sees these dreams and visions as a way that God is trying to communicate and that they need to be interpreted. And so she is anxious to have Jane discuss them. Jane doesn't want to talk about them. She just wants to get rid of them. So this is as if somebody um, went to the doctor to try to get cured of a sickness and the doctor actually wanted to study the person instead and didn't want to cure them. It's not a perfect analogy, but that's sort of what's going on, and it doesn't end very well. So Jane gets very frustrated and angry and says, this is not appropriate that you are um, trying to use me for your ends, and she feels very offended and runs out of the place. So meanwhile... Mark, her husband, is now spending the night at the Nice. Mm -hmm. And he is spending time with Fairy Hardcastle. Um, Fairy Hardcastle is the um, very uncouth woman. I don't know if it strikes you when you read this how really uncouth she is, because we're sort of used to this kind of thing in our culture today. But if you think about 1940s England, a woman, or a man for that matter, who conducted themselves in this matter would be absolutely beyond the pale. I mean, it's just sort of unimaginable. She's crude, she's rankly sexual, she's chewing on um, this cheroot tobacco thing all the time. She is vulgar, um, and she also is very suggestive. So Mark is doesn't quite know what to make of her, uh, it, but he is he's sort of simultaneously attracted and repelled. He's not attracted physically, but he finds her to be interesting. And she suggests that they need to work together because the secret police and the sociologist want the same thing. Now remember, Lewis doesn't think sociology is a real field. He doesn't think it's a real science. I'm sorry if anyone majored in sociology. Um, You can take that up with Lewis in the afterlife. Uh, 
but he is not a big fan of sociology, and so it's no accident Mark is a sociologist. But she, Ferry Hardcastle, encourages Mark and says he doesn't need to worry about a job description, uh, and it's clear that she is planning to use him for her own ends. So Jane, as she is on her journey back from St. Anne's, you know how sometimes when you make a decision and you're not quite sure whether you did the right thing and you want to convince yourself that you did the right thing and you rehearse over and over in your mind and maybe exaggerate a little bit about why you were right and the other person was wrong and you let that, maybe none of y'all do that, maybe it's just me, uh, but you let that sort of feed for a while and said so Jane spends the entire train ride back doing that. And she goes off on this thing that reminds me sort of of that old Helen Reddy song, I Am Woman, Hear Me Roar. Um, She's just talking about how she wants to live her life unfettered. And she is angry with herself at some level for having gotten married in the first place. She feels resentment against Mark. She feels resentment against love. She feels like it's invaded her life and that... She feels like women, when they get married, give up so much, and she resents that men don't appreciate this, and it just makes her that much more determined to certainly not ever have a child. And so she is getting all worked up about that, and then when she gets home, the phone is ringing, and it's Mother Dimble, who is the woman who's the wife of a professor who... Um, really helped look after Jane when she was a college student. And she has great affection for them, although she doesn't agree with them. She thinks they're very backwards. And, of course, she's smarter than they are. She's 23. Um, And they just don't know anything because they're old. Um, But Mother Dimble is having a crisis and says, can I please come over? And Jane says, yes. So that's the end of Chapter 3. So at some level, we can say we have finished Chapter 3 now. Except now, really. All right, so we're going to look at some key passages here. Uh, if you have your book, you might want to follow along with these. Uh, if you don't have it, don't worry. Uh, but I just am going to read a couple of these, and I want to just point out all of the different themes that are going on in here. It's quite remarkable. So Mark did not ask again in so many words what the nice wanted him to do, partly because he began to be afraid that he was supposed to know this already and partly because a perfectly direct question would have sounded a crudity in that room, a crudity which might suddenly exclude him from the warm and almost drugged atmosphere of vague yet heavily important confidence in which he was gradually being enfolded. That's a great description of the lure of the inner ring. And remember, Mark is so terrified of being embarrassed that this is about the fourth level that he's gotten to of where they're assuming that he knows things and he has no idea what they are talking about. And he's just nodding and smiling uh, and hoping he doesn't get found out. Not that any of us could relate to that. So the inner ring theme. Then... This next thing, Bill Hengist, um, the guy from Bracton who's at the nice but leaving, is talking to Mark about the meeting at the college about selling Bracton wood that uh, Bill Hengist was not at. And uh, Hengist says to Mark, it made no difference what decision they came to. Oh, said Mark with surprise. It was all nonsense, said Hengist. The nice would have had the wood in any case. They had powers to compel a sale. What an extraordinary thing. I was given to understand they were going to Cambridge if we didn't sell. Hingis sniffed loudly. Not a word of truth in it. As to its being an extraordinary thing, that depends on what you mean. There's nothing extraordinary in the fellows of Bracton talking all afternoon about an unreal issue. And there's nothing extraordinary in the fact that the nice should wish, if possible, to hand over to Bracton the odium of turning the heart of England into a cross between an abortive American hotel and a glorified gas works. The only real puzzle is why the knife should want that bit of land. And one of the things you see here 
This is one of the first instances of something that's going to be a big theme through here. The nice lies through its teeth. It lies and lies and lies and lies. And it makes itself sound very plausible. Uh, and it, it tries to convince the public that what it's doing is for everyone's good. But it's just lie after lie after lie. And Bill Hingist is very um, sensitive to this. And so he, he calls out and tries to explain to Mark about this. And then this whole idea, um, sorry since we're Americans, but the idea of an abortive American hotel, um, that, that's kind of a loaded phrase. So abortive doesn't actually have anything to do with abortion here, but he's using that word because it is a word that's associated with death. And the idea is that Americans are tacky and tasteless and all of those kinds of things. It's like putting up, remember what um, chain hotel architecture looked like in the 1960s? You can think of the old Howard Johnson's on Savannah Highway, um, if you've been around Charleston for a while. Um, not very beautiful. And so he's talking about that kind of thing right in the middle of this beautiful medieval English village and how just awful that is. And Gasworks has got that double meaning of uh, what a utility company would look like, ugly, noisy, bright lights, but also the Nazi gas chambers. So um, he's saying what the nice is up to is nefarious, it's evil, we don't know what it's all about, but it's clearly not good. So then Mark trying to justify himself. I have a strong objection to being put in a false position, began Mark. Listen, my friend, interrupted Philostrato. You must put all such ideas out of your head. The first thing is to realize that the nice is serious. It is nothing less than the existence of the human race that depends on our work, our real work, you comprehend. You will find frictions and impertinence among this canaglia, this rabble. They are no more to be regarded than your dislike of a brother officer when the battle is at its crisis. As long as I'm given something to do that is worth doing, said Mark. Well, there's a whole thing we could go into here. But the nice, what Philostrato is saying is we are about controlling the existence and the future of the human race. Now, if you think you're about to be employed by an organization that has that as its goal, you might want to ask what you're going to be doing, perhaps. And yet Mark just says, as long as I'm given something to do that's worth doing. So you can see here the nice is usurping God. God is nowhere in the picture, and it's like we are going to remake things the way we want them to be because we are so much smarter than all of the rest of you cattle out there. So then there's this description. This is a little long, but this is an important passage. This is when Jane has been let in the garden gate at St. Anne's. The woman led her along a brick path beside a wall on which fruit trees were growing, and then to the left along a mossy path with gooseberry bushes on each side. Then came a little lawn with a seesaw in the middle of it, and beyond that a greenhouse. Here they found themselves in the sort of hamlet that sometimes occurs in the purlieus of a large garden, walking, in fact, down a little street, which had a barn and a stable on one side and on the other, a second greenhouse and a potting shed and a pigsty, inhabited as the grunts and not wholly agreeable smell informed her. After that were narrow paths across a vegetable garden that seemed to be on a fairly steep hillside and then rose bushes, all stiff and prickly in their winter garb. At one place, they were going along a path made of single planks. This reminded Jane of something. It was a very large garden. It was like, like, yes, now she had it. It was like the garden in Peter Rabbit. Or was it like the garden in The Romance of the Rose? No, not in the least like, really. Or like Klingsor's garden, or the garden in Alice, or like the garden on the top of some Mesopotamian ziggurat, which had probably given rise to the whole legend of paradise, or simply like all walled gardens. Freud said we liked gardens because they were symbols of the female body. But that must be a man's point of view. Presumably gardens meant something different in women's dreams. Or did they? 
Did men and women both feel interested in the female body, and even though it sounded ridiculous in almost the same way? A sentence rose to her memory. The beauty of the female is the root of joy to the female as well as to the male. And it is no accident that the goddess of love is older and stronger than the god. Where on earth had she read that? And incidentally, what frightful nonsense she'd been thinking for the last minute or so. She shook off all these ideas about gardens and determined determined to pull herself together. A curious feeling that she was now on hostile or at least alien ground warned her to keep all her wits about her. So Lewis is playing with us here. But this idea of the garden is huge. Uh, Of course, it's deeply rooted in the idea of the Garden of Eden, paradise that God's creation is all about growth and beauty and variety and fruitfulness and all of those kinds of things. And several different uh, great literary gardens are talked about here. And the interesting thing that you see is that Jane wants to reject all of that. It makes her uncomfortable. This whole idea of growing and fruitfulness and beauty and all of that. And the other thing that Lewis is getting at here is the image of God that is reflected in male and female. And you will remember in Genesis, in the creation account, it says, and God made man in his own image, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And that together, male and female bear the image of God. And there is a complementarity there, that there are different gifts and different um, ways that each of those reflect the image of God, but that together there is a beauty and wholeness that is ordered. Remember St. Augustine, back when we were talking about abolition of man, rightly ordered loves, things in their right relationship to one another. And Lewis is showing us through this garden. Remember, a garden is cultivated. It's cultivated. Gardens don't just happen. And remember, in the Garden of Eden, the work in the garden of cultivating comes before the fall. A lot of people get confused about that and think work is a curse. Well, you may feel like your job is a curse, but work is not a curse. Work is a gift from God, and the cultivation of the garden is going to be an image that runs through this story and this whole idea of male and female, the joy of the differences between male and female being part of that complementarity of the image of God. So, the next part. Uh, Poor Jane. She's so determined to be independent, and she's just had this vision as she's walking through the garden where these words come to her. So she sits down to wait for Miss Ironwood, and she picks up the only book on the coffee table. She opens it and reads, The beauty of the female is the root of joy to the female as well as to the male. And it is no accident that the goddess of love is older and stronger than the god. To desire the desiring of her own beauty is the vanity of Lilith, but to desire the enjoying of her own beauty is the obedience of Eve. And to both it is in the lower that the beloved, in the lover, sorry, that the beloved tastes her own delightfulness. As obedience is the stairway of pleasure, so humility is the, at that moment, the door was suddenly opened. Jane turned crimson as she shut the book and looked up. So she's just had this vision walking through the garden. She sits down in the waiting room, picks up the book, and there the words that came into her mind are printed on the page that she opens the book up to. But she is so determined that she's in charge that she just ignores it. She's had this showing or the sign that has happened to her, but she just is so angry about wanting to do her own thing that she refuses to even have a sense of wonder about it. So then this is from her interview with Miss Ironwood. Disappointment shadowed Jane's face. Then can't anything be done about it, about the dreams? They were horrible dreams, horribly vivid, not like dreams at all. I can quite understand that, said Miss Ironwood. Is it something that can't be cured? The reason you cannot be cured is you are not ill. But there must be something wrong. 
It's surely not natural to have dreams like that. There was a pause. I think, said Miss Arnwood, I'd better tell you the whole truth. Yes, do, said Jane in a strained voice. The other's words had frightened her. And I will begin by saying this, continued Miss Arnwood, you are a more important person than you imagine. Jane said nothing but thought inwardly, she's humoring me. She thinks I am mad. What was your maiden name, asked Miss Arnwood. Tudor, said Jane. At any other moment, she would have said it rather self-consciously, for she was very anxious not to be supposed vain of her ancient ancestry. The Warwickshire branch of the family? Yes. Vision, the power of dreaming realities, is sometimes hereditary, said Miss Arnwood. Something seemed to be interfering with Jane's breathing. She felt a sense of injury. This was just the sort of thing she hated, something out of the past, something irrational and utterly uncalled for, coming up from its den and interfering with her. So you see here, she is utterly rejecting the whole idea of purpose, that there might be any meaning to this. She just wants to get it out of her life. She has no concept that this might be a gift that she should receive. She has no concept of God's plan that God might want to use this or use her, and that she might actually be important. And that's a great irony, is she thinks she's so important. She thinks she's so awesome. She thinks she is the very, well, it's like that old Gilbert and Sullivan, the very model of a modern major general. Um, She thinks she is the very model of the brave new world of career woman. And here, Miss Ironwood is saying, you are actually really important. And Jane is like, ah! No, thank you. She has no interest, and she has this complete rebellion that is rooted in her selfishness against all of it. So Miss Arnwood continues, My opinion is that you have seen real things in your dreams. And Jane knows this, because remember, she saw the head being twisted off, and then she saw it on the front page of the newspaper the next day. Everything that she's had in these dreams or visions has actually been verified in some sort of outside source. You have seen Alcasan as he really sat in the condemned cell, and you've seen a visitor whom he really had. But, but, oh, this is ridiculous, said Jane. That part was a mere coincidence. The rest was just a nightmare. It was all impossible. He screwed off his head, I tell you, and they dug up that horrible old man. They made him come to life. There are some confusions there, but in my opinion, there are realities behind even those episodes. I am afraid I don't believe in that sort of thing, said Jane coldly. So she is willfully unbelieving. She has not only the vision, she has the proof that it actually happened in reality, and she is absolutely refusing to accept it. This is uh, like cognitive dissonance on steroids. It is uh, very, very interesting. She is just absolutely determined not to go there. So Miss Ironwood continues, your upbringing makes it natural that you should not. We get some good abolition of man themes here. Be ready replied Miss Arnwood, unless, of course, you have discovered for yourself that you have a tendency to dream real things. Jane thought of the book on the table, which she had apparently remembered before she saw it. And then there was Miss Arnwood's own appearance. That, too, she had seen before she saw it. But it must be nonsense. Can you then do nothing for me? I can tell you the truth, said Miss Arnwood. I've tried to do so. I mean, can you not stop it, cure it? Vision is not a disease. But I don't want it, said Jane passionately. I must stop it. So here we've got upbringing and education that have conditioned her to not be able to accept any of what is a concrete reality that is in her world. She is confronted with concrete reality and denies it because of the way she's been brought up and educated. She is rejecting her identity. She's rejecting her gifting. And she says, it is up to me to determine who I am. 
Does that sound familiar? So, yeah, we're going to get much more of that later on. All right, and then some more from Miss Ironwood. We know your dreams to be partly true because they fit in with information we already possess. It was because he saw their importance that Dr. Dumble sent you to us. Do you mean he sent me here not to be cured, but to give information, said Jane? The idea fitted in with things she'd observed in his manner when she first told him. Exactly. I wish I had known that a little earlier, said Jane coldly, and now definitely getting up to go. I'm afraid it's been a misunderstanding. I had imagined Dr. Dumble was trying to help me. He was, but he was also trying to do something more important at the same time. I suppose I should be grateful for being considered at all, said Jane dryly. And how exactly was I to be helped by, by all this sort of thing? The attempt at icy irony collapsed as she said these last words, and red, undisguised anger rushed back into her face. In some ways, she was very young. Young lady, said Miss Ironwood, you do not at all realize the seriousness of this matter. The things you have seen concern something compared with which the happiness or even the life of you and me is of no importance. I must beg you to face the situation. You cannot get rid of your gift. You can try to suppress it, but you will fail, and you'll be very badly frightened. On the other hand, you can put it at our disposal. If you do so, you will be much less frightened in the long run, and you will be helping to save the human race from a very great disaster. Or thirdly, you may tell someone else about it. If you do that, I warn you that you will almost certainly fall into the hands of other people who are at least as anxious as we to make use of your faculty and who will care no more about your life and happiness than about those of a fly. The people you've seen in your dreams are real people. It is not at all unlikely that they know that you have involuntarily been spying on them. And if so, they will not rest until they have got found of you. I would advise you, even for your own sake, to join our side. Well, there's a lot to unpack in there, so we're just going to skim the surface of that. But Jane has worked herself into righteous indignation that Dr. Dumble, who she thought was her friend, because he sent her to these people and they didn't want to do exactly what she wanted them to do, he must have been manipulating and using and taking advantage of her. And so she has gotten her nose out of joint, and she feels very angry and manipulated. And even when Miss Ironwood... Now remember, she's seen Miss Ironwood in a vision before, before she ever met her, and she's wearing exactly the same clothes that she was wearing in the vision. That might get your attention, just possibly. And then Miss Ironwood talks to her, and she says, you don't realize the seriousness of this matter. And then when Miss Arnwood is explaining that to her, she says that this is something that is unbelievably important. And the remarkable thing about that is that she doesn't seem to care at all. Miss Arnwood says, the things you have seen concerns something compared with which the happiness or even the life of you and me is of no importance. Now, you would think if you had even a modicum of curiosity, you would at least say, what? Tell me more about that. But she just completely passes that by. She's so angry that even when she's confronted with all these things that are real and factual, she can't see them. She's so committed to the cause of her independence, her being unfettered from anything, that objective reality, oh, wait, abolition of man, objective reality that's right in front of her, she completely denies. Now, I would suggest to you that this is rife in our culture right now. But some of the themes going on here, one of them is obedience 
as valuable for the individual and the world. And you might remember long ago we talked about that Greek word mimesis versus poiesis. And mimesis is simply a big fancy word that basically says living into the way that you were designed. So, for example, if you are somebody who uh, is really gifted at being a long-distance runner, you probably wouldn't want to try to be a linebacker on a football team. That's not going to work out very well. Um, You will probably get hurt, and you won't be very good at it. And so it's the idea of living into your design brings human flourishing. And that that's true when when people live into their design, it causes flourishing. And when groups of people live into their design, it causes human flourishing. But when we refuse to do that, it's just like what St. Paul talks about in Corinthians with the body. If every part of the body decides, I'm a hand, I'm a hand, we're all going to be hands, that's not going to work very well. And Jane is so caught in the spirit of the age of thinking that it's all about her and what she wants and what she believes, even in the face of objective reality that says she's wrong, that she gets seduced by that. Um, There also is spiritual warfare that's kind of a subtext through all of this. So um, now we have gone from St. Anne's on the Hill and the lovely garden in Miss Ironwood, and now we are back in the clutches of the nice um, in their temporary headquarters in the blood transfusion laboratory. So Mark is here. Several times that day, he had been made to feel himself an outsider. That feeling completely disappeared while Miss Hardcastle was talking to him. He had the sense of getting in. Miss Hardcastle had apparently lived an exciting life. She had been at different times a suffragette, a pacifist, and a British fascist. She had been manhandled by the police and imprisoned. On the other hand, she had met prime ministers, dictators, and famous film stars. All her history was secret history. She knew from both ends what a police force could do and what it could not. And there were, in her opinion, very few things it could not do. Now, this is uh, so applicable today, but it's this whole idea of being seduced by the inner circle and celebrity culture. You know, just the fact that Mark is so impressed that this disordered woman has met prime ministers and dictators and famous film stars. You can just hear the disdain dropping from Lewis's pen as he writes that. And if Lewis could look today and if we could explain to him the concept of Instagram influencers, he would probably just pass out and die right on the floor. Because this whole idea that people would follow these people and pattern their life because of that instead of living into who God made them to be and again mimesis living into what they were designed for and it's just such an example of how Mark is just seduced by this he's totally seduced by it so then it gets even worse Mark gathered that for the ferry the police side of the institute was the really important side it existed to relieve the ordinary executive of what might be called all sanitary or health cases, a category which ranged from vaccination to charges of unnatural vice, from which, she pointed out, it was only a step to bringing in all cases of blackmail. As regards crime in general, they had already popularized in the press the idea that the Institute should be allowed to experiment pretty largely in the hope of discovering how far humane remedial treatment could be substituted for the old notion of retributive or vindictive punishment. That was where a lot of legal red tape stood in their way. Habeas corpus, individual liberty, that's the red tape they're talking about. But there are only two papers we don't control, said the fairy, and we'll smash them. You've got to get the ordinary man into the state in which he says sadism automatically when he hears the word punishment, and then one would have carte blanche. Mark did not immediately follow this, but the fairy pointed out that what had hampered every English police force up to date was precisely the idea of deserved punishment. 
for the dessert was always finite. You could do so much to the criminal and no more. Remedial treatment, on the other hand, need have no fixed limit. It could go on till it had effected a cure, and those who were carrying it out would decide when that was. And if the cure were humane and desirable, how much more prevention? Soon anyone who had ever been in the hands of the police at all would come under the control of the nice in the end. Every citizen. And that's where you and I come in, Sonny, added the fairy, tapping Mark's chest with her forefinger. There's no distinction in the long run between police work and sociology. You and I have got to work hand in hand. So there's a lot in there as well. But one of the things that uh, Lewis is trying to point out here is that it is very easy for tyranny to develop in these kinds of situations. A tyranny, um, I can't remember if Lewis said this or someone, it's a, a, the worst tyranny is one that is exercised by someone who thinks they're doing it for other people's good. And that is exactly what they're talking about here. And the idea that if you take over the media and you keep pushing lies and a narrative over and over and over and over again, it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the people will be unable to stand up against it. And things that used to be normal um, will be uh, defined as something just horribly bad. And that the language will be co-opted uh, so that these things that used to be praiseworthy or that people even aspired to suddenly become the worst possible thing that you could ever, ever do. And I'm, I'm trying to be very careful to not be political here. But it is, um, it's just very interesting that particularly when you look at what is going on in the media in our country, when you look at this whole idea um, that infects our culture that the ends justify the means, that because we know that this is what should happen, um, whatever it takes to get there, even if it means lying, cheating, whatever else it might be, that's all justified. And so, of course, Lewis is foreseeing all of this. And one of the themes that you'll see throughout this book, um, and you see this in a lot of these dystopian fantasies, it's in Aldous Huxley and in Orwell also, that control of the health system is one of the areas that is particularly dangerous for an unaccountable government. And you see, of course, the worst example of that with Nazi Germany, where it just went wild. So that as a gateway for government control, manipulation and control of the media, we're going to have some quotations later that you're going to think that I copied it out of the newspaper today as shocking. Um, but manipulation and control of the media, redefining of terms to demonize normal practices and the ever-growing reach of government. So um, then there's a fascinating little section right at the end of the chapter where Mark is talking to Bill Hingist about why Hingist wants to leave the nice. So this is Hingist speaking, who is the most eminent scientist. Remember, Lewis tells us he's one of the only two people in Bracton College that had an international reputation as a scientist. But they said he got no respect at Bracton because he was the wrong kind of scientist. He believed in absolute truth. So Hingist says this, I came here because I thought it had something to do with science. Now that I find it something more like a political conspiracy, I shall go home. I'm too old for that kind of thing, and if I wanted to join a conspiracy, this wouldn't be my choice. You mean, I suppose, that the element of social planning doesn't appeal to you? I can quite understand that it doesn't fit in with your work, as it does with sciences like sociology, but there are no sciences like sociology. And if I found chemistry beginning to fit in with a secret police run by a middle-aged virago who doesn't wear corsets and a scheme for taking away his farm and his shop and his children from every Englishman, I'd let chemistry go to the devil. It's not an accident. I'd let chemistry go to the devil 
and take up gardening again. That's not an accident either. So this whole idea of true science versus scientism, political conspiracy, danger of amoral agents of control um, that get into positions of power. And the Kingus continues, that's what happens when you study men. You find mare's nests. I happen to believe that you can't study men. You can only get to know them, which is quite a different thing. Because you study them, you, Mark, want to make the lower orders govern the country and listen to classical music, which is balderdash. You also want to take away from them everything which makes life worth living, and not only from them, but from everyone except a parcel of prigs and professors. So it's the whole idea that you don't treat men or women as individuals who bear the image of God. They're a social experiment. They are like rats in some sort of drug trial, and that they are not individuals bearing the image of God. And the problem with Mark's attitude and that of the nice is that they see people as things to be controlled or suppressed or improved. And again, this flies absolutely in the face of the idea of being created in the image of God. So Mark tries to make peace um, after this rather difficult conversation, and this is very British. He says, I suppose there are two views about everything, said Mark. Eh? Two views? There are a dozen views about everything until you know the answer. Then there's never more than one. But it's no affair of mine. Good night. And this is the whole idea of absolute truth that Lewis expounds in great detail and the abolition of man. So, um, just in case you missed it, there are a lot of themes in this chapter. I'm going to read this really fast. Lies, ends, justify the means, works of death, usurping God's role, the fruitful garden and beauty, male and female image of God, signs and gifts, God's purposes, selfish rebellion, willful unbelief and disobedience, upbringing and education, rejection of identity and gifting, leading to self-determination, obedience is valuable for the individual in the world, importance of each individual in using gifts, spiritual warfare, danger of the lore of the inner circle and celebrity culture, health and sanitary practice as a gateway to government control, manipulation and control of the media, redefining of terms to demonize normal practice, ever-growing reach of government, true science versus scientism, political conspiracy, danger of amoral agents of control, treating humans as image bearers, not as lab experiments to be controlled, and absolute truth. You can see why it takes me so long to get through a chapter. So, some practices of hope and wisdom as we start wrapping up. Um, Let's say this verse from Philippians together. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So a couple of practices to think about based on this chapter. First, pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Because it is all too easy when you live in a culture that's full of what we just talked about for even Christians to have their vision clouded. And there's that gorgeous passage in Ephesians 1 where St. Paul says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And it's this idea of praying that God would remind us by opening our eyes about the surpassing worth of his kingdom so we are not deceived. And then this passage that is so often overlooked, Jesus right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and this is so key, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. And the idea here is the eye is kind of a metaphor for the way that you see things. 
the way that you see the world. And if the way that you see the world is healthy, your eye is that lamp of the body that gives light uh, to the way that you live. But if your body has an eye that is unhealthy, if your vision is skewed, if you're like Jane Studdock, rejecting the objective reality that's right in front of you because you're so all about you, then your whole body is going to be full of darkness. So the second thing, soak in scripture for sanctification. Jesus, again, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. We are sent into the world, but we need to have the truth of God's word sanctifying us and surrounding us as we go out. And that power of the word of God, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Thirdly, seek out what your spiritual gifts are, use them, and seek to draw out and encourage the spiritual gifts of others. Those of you that have read ahead will know how critical the visions that Jane is having are to what the purposes of God are in the way this story unfolds. Imagine if you had a whole church full of gifted people who refused to live, use their gifts, who didn't encourage others in their body to use their gifts. This is something that is hugely important. So Paul and Romans, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And then Paul again, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. That is the way it is designed to work. And the more that we do that, the more fruit will come out of the garden. And then fourthly, resist the standards of the world, which would remake identity, redefine language, and reject absolute truth by holding fast to a Christian worldview. And again, Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world. Jane is such a perfect example of someone who is conformed to the world. Do not, and Mark too, for that matter, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. That is something we all need to work on because we are being hammered on by our culture. I want to just close with something that's a little bit out of the box here. Um, George Herbert, one of the great Christian poets of all time, born in 1593, uh, an English priest, and uh, this particular poem was one that Bishop Lawrence talked about during our clergy retreat, and it was so on point. Uh, I just wanted to share it with you, and I'll try to unpack a little bit of this. O book, infinite sweetness, let my heart suck every letter and a honey gain, precious for any grief in any part to clear the breast, to mollify all pain. Thou art all health, health thriving, till it make a full eternity. Thou art a mass of strange delights where we may wish and take. Ladies, look here. This is the thankful glass. Thankful glass is a mirror. This is the thankful glass that mends the looker's eyes. This is the well that washes what it shows. Who can endear thy praise too much? Thou art heaven's leisure here, leisure's ambassador working against the states of death and hell. Thou art joy's hand cell, first deposit. 
Heaven lies flat in thee. On the printed page, heaven is described, subject to every mounter's bended knee. It would take a long time to unpack all of that, but the idea is that Scripture is a treasure trove that we deserve um, to give more credence to in our day-to-day life. So with that, let me close this with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the fact that your word is true. And Lord, that you long to sanctify us in your truth. And that you have made us male and female in your image. That you've given every one of us marvelous gifts for the building up of your kingdom. Lord, we pray that you would help us to shake off the dirty clothes of our culture that we so often choose to dress ourselves in. And that instead you would give us new raiment that is the raiment of your Holy Spirit that we might live lives of meaning and purpose and truth that would be transformative for your kingdom. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Just so you know, two things. Next week, uh, thanks to Bob Bowles' suggestion, there will be a question box on that little table, and I will be happy to have questions about anything about what we've talked about in class And at some point, I will take part of a class to answer those. Um, And then secondly, uh, please try to meet someone that you haven't met uh, before you go home tonight. Thank you so much for coming.